I say a lot in my sermons that the green season, the Sundays after Pentecost, uh, are about the, the nature of Christian discipleship, the cost of Christian discipleship, uh, the fact that as we uh, seek to be faithful, there's an evolutionary process to our understanding of discipleship. And actually today in the gospel, we have a parable that is about uh, the nature of discipleship, one of the cornerstones, and that is uh, realism about who we are and also the importance of humility as uh, part of the Christian faith and life. I, I didn't intend to preach on uh, the reading from Second Timothy, but I thought this morning when I listened to it again at 8 o'clock, it's an interesting juxtaposition to have that reading as the epistle and then to read the gospel because Paul is absolutely taking nothing off of anybody and telling everyone that, that he is blameless. He's fought the good fight. He's done all of those kinds of things. And if nothing else, it's a reminder that, you know, Paul um, was not like Luther thought he was, and that is neurotic as a bedbug. You know, about, about whether or not he was saved or whether or not he was in, Paul had no doubt he believed himself to be absolutely blameless because he had meticulously followed the law and he had done everything that he was supposed to do. But what he was concerned to convey to people was, who's in and how do you get in? And you get in through your belief in Christ. So that means that a Jew who has followed the law is not in because of that. He or she is in because of belief in Christ. But it also means that the Gentile is in because of their belief in Christ. And they don't have to keep the law. It is not necessary for them to do that. They are in because of that. What follows are the processes of the spiritual life and the development of the soul as it begins to uh, have a fuller and clearer understanding of God's purposes. I'm kind of old-fashioned about this. Uh, the soul, in the old way of speaking, meant the reason and the will. So the use of both of those uh, human faculties are part of how the soul is strengthened, the reason and the will. And today we have a parable from Luke's gospel that's about a very important Christian theme. But first let me say this. Whenever you read the parables of Jesus, whenever you read any sayings of Jesus in the gospels, you need to consider two or three things at least. One is, what did Jesus mean when he spoke the parable? What was his, what was his meaning? The second thing is, what did the community that heard this parable, kept, wrote it down, and ultimately created a gospel around the parables and the sayings of Jesus, how did they understand it and what did it mean for them in the time in which it was written? And then the third thing is, what does it mean to you and me, if anything? Is it of any utility in our own spiritual progress? 
And it's important to say something about this because the understanding of Pharisee is an important thing in terms of its evolution uh, in the history of Judaism and in how Jewish Christians and ultimately Christians uh, greeted the issue uh, or who the Pharisees were and how they understood them. It's very important. And I used to have a, a sort of a incorrect image of what these two guys looked like when we were talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector. So the story is we're in the temple precincts or nearby and there is a Pharisee uh, who is praying and in his prayers extolling his own virtues about how faithful he is. He fasts twice a week. He says his prayers. He gives a tenth of his income. He does all the things. He's dotted all the I's and crosses all the T's. Not like that tax collector. Now, now in the time of Jesus, when Jesus is speaking this parable, there's a couple of things you can say, at least what biblical scholarship knows. The first is that in all probability, it, it, they loom much larger in the Gospels than they really were numerically, they Pharisees, at the time of Jesus. The Pharisees became very prominent by the time the Gospels were being written. And it's the Pharisees, by the way, that were the party within Judaism that permitted Judaism to continue after the temple was destroyed. And they created what some these days call rabbinic Judaism. How do you do this with no temple? So the Pharisees became very important and they also became opponents, vocal opponents often, of the emerging Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians as they now begin to uh, have a sense of who they are that is distinct from the religious tradition that sort of uh, they grew out from. So the Pharisees, in a sense, have a bad press in the Gospels because they have become annoying to the early Christians. A tax collector, when have they ever been popular? <laughs> I mean, here we are in 2013. Are we loving the IRS? Or if you're naming the Internal Revenue or whatever, the Inland Revenue or whatever you call it, really? But a tax collector in the Roman imperial system in Palestine in the first century was a Jew who was collecting money for the Roman imperial system from his own people. And here's how the system worked. The Romans said to the tax collector, here's the percentage of tax we wish you to collect from everybody. If you can collect more, you can keep the difference. So there was some incentive, right? Some of the old San Francisco restaurants, I remember when I was a kid that, that were successful, the owner would say to the bartenders, I want you to pour $25 out of every bottle that's here. If you can pour $30 out of it, then you get the other five. 
right? Either that or they'd say, I'll buy a new Cadillac every year. Just don't steal from me. So the, fair, the, the tax collector is somebody who is not popular and often engages in nefarious collection practices. So here we have a scene. I used to think that if you had an artist draw this, that the tax collector would look like a uh, sort of emaciated, uh, small in his body, uh, overweeningly penitential, um, innocuous individual. And that the Pharisee would look sort of splendid in some striped outfit and, you know, the, the, the costume of the day, very self-confident about, about things. It's just the reverse. The Pharisee would have appeared ascetic, maybe somewhat wasted by his austerities, having a little sense of um, zeal in his eye about the commitments that he has with regard to the practice of his religion, a kind of relent. All of us know people like this, don't we, who are kind of, you know what I mean? They don't let up. So maybe you would, have had, you would have had somebody like that as the Pharisee. And the tax collector would have been dressed like a Wall Street banker. Successful, self-confident, well-fed, knew exactly who he was and what he was going to do. So it's these two people now who have, on the one hand, the Pharisee appearing like he is more righteous and the tax collector being very uh, self-effacing and humbled in that situation and circumstance. Most of us uh, would say intellectually that we don't do this or think this, but If we say to ourselves, you know, I want to do my best to be faithful and dot the I's and cross the T's. We're kind of hoping from time to time, at least, that it's going to benefit us in some way. Maybe by the time we get to the pearly gates. Right? So we will be able to say this. This is a a bit off the subject, but the priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona, was a character. And he used to say in sermons, he would say, you know, sometime if we die and go to God and we get there on the great day of judgment, it's entirely possible that we're going to be asked something that we didn't expect to be asked. It may have nothing to do with what we think we haven't done, therefore to earn our righteousness, but it could be something else. Like, suppose God says to you, did you know there are no more whales? What did you do with all the whales? They're gone. And you say, well, I didn't think... I didn't think it mattered. You know, I give 10% of my income. I fast twice a week. Well, there are no whales. 
You should have been concerned about that. Now, that's hyperbolic, isn't it? It borders on the silly. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes there's this reversal that takes place and we're not... We're not aware of it. I think it galls a lot of people that when they hear Jesus is that the, the, the last will be first and the first will be last. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself uh, will be exalted. It's just a bitter pill. It's very difficult to take. A lot of people don't uh, want maybe to be part of that kind of Christianity. Last night, Nancy and I watched on Channel 9 the movie Separate Tables. They had showed it. It's an old... It's about 50, nearly 60 years old. David Niven, Rita Hayworth, you know, all these people. And uh, this is a hotel in Bournemouth. And there are permanent residents in the hotel. And then there are a few guests that pass through, but mainly there are these people who live there all the time. And they all know each other, but they sit at separate tables. It's very interesting. One of the permanent, fairly new permanent guests, it is discovered because of a newspaper article, was guilty of some uh, um, unpleasant behavior in public. And so as the result of that, one of the permanent residents is over the moon and is worried about how it might reflect on them. And so she has a meeting with all of the permanent residents to discuss what should be done about this, right? And Burt Lancaster, who's one of the things, comes in and makes a lot of fun of this because it's that it's like the boldest, baldest expression of self-righteousness and complete lack of self-knowledge on the part of the person who's engineering this deal. And I thought, you know, about the sermon that I was about to preach, and I thought, you know what? This is a perfect example of what we see all the time and always have. There are people who simply can't see the forest for the trees. Humility is not a a way of being and relating in the world that means you have to cultivate and express and reflect a continuous lack of self-esteem. That is not what humility is. And it has become confused. The unfortunate thing is that sometimes people who advocate humility as that have themselves gone through bad circumstances in life and have become addicted to being depressed or belief that they have low self, that they're not worth anything. So it's better to go with what you know, as you know, George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers sang years ago, instead of say, no, Thomas Aquinas was right. Thomas Aquinas said, humility is knowing yourself. Humility is knowing how high you can reach. Humility is knowing all of the things that you can do well, some of them better than other people. And simultaneously acknowledging that there are other people who can do things better than you can do. And you should pay attention to them and learn something from their practical wisdom. 
So that humility within the Christian faith and life in the Christian community has an element of reciprocity. All of us are valued in God's eyes. Jesus is not uh, putting a winner and a loser to the Pharisee tax collector thing. He's merely saying all of us are beloved of God and sometimes the people that we don't expect are going to receive God's favor. And, you know, if you just can't stand it, you're going to have to get over it. Because that's the way things work in the divine economy. So this week, think a little bit about what what it means uh, to be a humble person. It sort of starts with the Dalai Lama. I say this over and over again. I was talking about Buddhism yesterday. You know, what do you need to do to become spiritually enlightened? What do you need to do to mature in, the, in your spirituality? It's very important to be a good person. It's very important to be a good person. You know, seems simple, but it's pretty hard, isn't it? So this week, ask God to give you the stamina and the perseverance to work on your humility Understand the reciprocal nature of humility and uh, be willing to learn from other people. Amen.